Well, good to see you this morning. If you have a a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2. Going to be reading this morning verses 42 through 47. Acts, chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Just to connect... The timeline for you, we're celebrating this morning Palm Sunday. So we're celebrating that day when Christ rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. The king had arrived. And Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die, to be crucified for our sins in order that we might find forgiveness through faith in Him. And He did die. He rose again. And uh, and about 40 days later, Jesus ascended back to heaven. And the book of Acts then covers the historical events that took place over the next 35 years after the ascension of Christ. It's just all the effects of Christ's death and resurrection that we see in the book of Acts. So we'll be reading Acts 2, starting in verse 42. We'll, We'll set it up here for a couple minutes before we read. Let's pray before we start here. Lord, we just thank you for every opportunity to look at our King Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you, Father, for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The king had arrived to to die and rise again for our sins. And just a joy to be able to celebrate uh, again this year the arrival of our king, a humble king, a mighty, powerful king. We thank you, Father, that our king will come back again someday. And uh, this time, not riding on a donkey, but riding on the clouds in great glory. We thank you, Father. And as we turn to your word here again to the book of Acts, we do pray, Father, uh, for your help in looking at this. Pray you would bless us now as we look at your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. I wonder if you have a a picture somewhere uh, in your home, a a photo or, or a portrait, maybe that kind of captures your childhood. Uh, I have one of those. Um, My dear mother, who's actually here this morning, uh, did this painting of my brother, my older brother, my younger sister and I as kids at our vacation spot in Cape Cod we would always go to. And we were in this portrait running down this sandy path that we would always take to get to the beach. Uh, I don't remember who was first in line. It was probably me. I was much faster than the others. Uh, But there we were in our little swimsuits and our our, our shovels and, and, and our buckets. And it was just this sort of iconic family portrait that, that really captures or characterizes in many ways my, my early life. And, and in this passage here in the book of Acts, Luke, who wrote Acts, now gives us this tiny picture or portrait that kind of captures or characterizes the early church in Jerusalem. He gives us this little description now that, 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 uh, that just um, um, kind of encapsulates 
traits or characterize the early church there in Jerusalem. A church that just recently went through some major church growth uh, before Jesus ascended back to heaven at the start of Acts. He told his original apostles in Matthew 28 to go and make more disciples of all nations, uh, to make more Christ followers of, of all nations. And after Christ's ascension then, at the start of Acts 2, which we looked at last week, well, the apostles began to make new disciples of all nations in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The city was packed at the time with all kinds of foreigners who were there to celebrate Pentecost. And the start, at the start of Acts 2, Luke said the Holy Spirit then filled the 12 original apostles and the other early disciples, some 120 disciples in all, all of them filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues, the foreign languages of these foreigners. It drew this massive crowd around the disciples, and the apostle Peter then preached to this crowd in Acts chapter 2, preached about Christ, his death, his resurrection, and the forgiveness they could have through faith in Christ. And Acts 2.41 says that 3,000 new souls were then added to the number of disciples on that day. That is a good church growth strategy, (laughs) what they've done right here, man. Uh, These 3,000 brand spanking new Christians, Jesus told his disciples to make more disciples, and man, they have now begun to do it. And you know, many of these 3,000 new disciples uh, probably didn't stay in Jerusalem. The, The foreigners, they would have traveled back to their own country taking the name of Jesus with them to these countries. But a lot of the 3,000 probably did remain there in Jerusalem. That early Christian church there in Jerusalem now just exploding in one day from 120 Christians to to several hundred, possibly uh, over a thousand or so new Christians. And in this passage right here, well, Luke now gives us this tiny little picture the brief description of this early church. Let's go ahead and read it, Acts 2. Let's, let's just start in verse 41. So those who received Peter's word on the day of Pentecost were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And, here's the picture of the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need." And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, as we go through the book of Acts... Luke, he will give us several of these little summary statements like that 
about the early Christian churches. And Luke gives us those little summaries to teach us, to give us some idea of what true church life should look like. You know, when you first put your faith in Christ, you begin to to follow Christ in faith. Well, God then forgives you of all your sin, and God also then brings you into the universal body of Christ. And, And God now expects you as a believer, to be actively engaged in a local church like this one. And Luke, in these little summaries of church life here in the book of Acts, Luke is teaching us what a local church like ours should look like. John Polhill says this. He says, Luke's summaries present an ideal for the Christian community or for the Christian church, which it, the Christian church or community, must always strive for constantly return to and discover anew. And in this first little summary here, this little picture of the early church in Jerusalem, we can see four different characteristics or features of this church here that we as a local church should also strive for. And the first characteristic that we can see in this church right here that we should also strive for, number one, learning. This church here, this was a learning church. Luke says here that this church in Jerusalem now devoted themselves to several different things. If you look again at verse 42 here, and they devoted themselves, Luke says, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the Greek word Luke used there for uh, devoted, it means they gave themselves to, they held fast to, they persevered in continually these different things here. And one thing they devoted themselves to, Luke says, was the apostles' teaching. The 12 apostles, and you think about these 12 guys, you got Peter, you got James, you got John, you got, you got Matthew, all these other guys. Well, these apostles had been with Jesus throughout his public ministry from start to finish. They had lived with Jesus, they heard Jesus teach, they watched Jesus. Jesus had taught these apostles the scriptures. Uh, Luke 24 says that Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Jesus taught them the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. Pretty cool, by the way, to receive this uh, very personal hands-on seminary training uh, from God in human flesh. Uh, Not a bad seminary training for these guys. And Jesus had taught the scriptures to these apostles, not just in their heads, but also in their hearts and in their hands. He had filled their heads with the truth of the Scriptures. But Jesus had also conformed their hearts to the truth of the Scriptures. He also helped them to live out the truth of the Scriptures in their hands, in in practical daily life and, and, and ministry. And here now in the book of Acts, uh, Jesus has just now recently handed this teaching ministry of his off to these 12 men. He has just recently kind of handed them the proverbial ball. You take it and 
and run down the field now. Before his ascension, Jesus had said this to these guys in Matthew 28, 19. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And man, these 12 apostles, they are now obeying the command of Jesus very, very well. They have just made a bunch of new disciples of all nations. Verse 41 says they just baptized all those disciples according to Christ's command, and now they are teaching all of these brand new disciples in head, heart, and hand truth, passing on what Jesus had given to them. Probably not an easy job for these apostles to teach several hundred or maybe even a thousand new Christians here. (laughs) Oh my word. Kent Hughes, he says that at Pentecost, it was basically like the Holy Spirit had just opened a new school in Jerusalem with only 12 primary teachers, and over a thousand kindergartners. (laughs) Not easy to teach kindergartners for those of you who've done it. When I graduated from college, I actually substitute taught for one day Uh, in a Christian grade school PE, gym class, uh, and, and, and the kindergartners. They were the ones, uh, just probably 25 or so, almost killed me running around like maniacs, screaming, hanging from the rafters. I had lost control within 10 seconds of this hour-long class, and I never substitute taught again. Never will. I'd rather drive a bread truck. And these 12 apostles are now essentially teaching hundreds, if not over a thousand, kindergartners, spiritual infants in the Christian faith. But man, the good news about these little kindergartners here is that they are hungry to learn. They devoted themselves, Luke says, to the apostles' teaching. They gave themselves to it. They continued in it. They persevered in it without ceasing. A learning church here. And learning should characterize every local church today and every single Christian today. We should also be devoted. We should give ourselves to uh, continually the apostles' teaching. And where do we find the apostles' teaching today? Well, you find it in your New Testament. The, sec- the, the, the last third of, of your Bible Man, these apostles of Jesus, these 12 guys, after they were taught by Jesus and after they taught these kindergartners here, well, they then wrote the New Testament. (laughs) Matthew, James, Peter, John, they wrote the books of the New Testament along with Paul who wrote half the the New Testament. These guys wrote the, the New Testament and their New Testament books are all rooted in the Old Testament books, the first one-third of your Bible. So what does it look like for, for you and me or for our church to be devoted to the apostles' teaching today? Well, that means you're devoted to the Scriptures. You are devoted to the Word of God, both Old and New Testaments. And man, that right there should characterize not just this church back then, 
But Luke is telling us it should characterize every church until Christ returns. One of the primary characteristics of every church, including this one, one of the distinctive features of every church and of every single Christian should be a deep-down devotion to the Bible. Reading the Bible, studying the Bible, hearing the Bible taught and and preached, um, and, and learning this truth in the Scriptures, not just in our heads like many Christians do, but also having our hearts conform to the truth in the Scriptures, learning how to live this truth out through our hands in very practical daily life and, and ministry. We need to feed on that book there. The Apostle Peter in First Peter 2.2, he says this to Christians. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Think about an infant, a, a, a newborn infant. If you have one in your home right now, well, that infant needs milk in order to grow. Some of you mothers with young infants now, you know very well your baby needs milk, screaming half the night right now uh, for, for milk. And spiritual infants, Christians, also need milk in order to grow. A pure spiritual milk, Peter says there, and that milk is the Word of God. Listen, please. Without this right here, in your life, in your mind, in your heart, coming out of your hands, without this right here, you just won't grow all that well. You will be stunted in your spiritual growth. If that's you right now, then you are stunted in your spiritual growth, like, like this malnourished orphan, maybe, that, that you might see in another country. You will be spiritually malnourished. It doesn't matter what you do within the church or at work or in your home. If you're distant from the Word of God, you are right now spiritually malnourished. We must, as Christians, devote ourselves to this pure spiritual milk. Uh, Molly and I had one infant child who will... Rename, remain unnamed, uh, this child would just not stop nursing. No matter what she did, would nurse for a while, fall asleep there with Molly, wake up and nurse some more for hours if allowed. <laughs> this infant was devoted to that milk. <laughs> and man, the scripture is telling us, God is telling us here that as Christians, we should be devoted to this spiritual milk. That, that's one thing that our, our church's um, DNA groups are designed to do. In our DNA groups, if you're in a DNA group, those groups should be encouraging one another. They should be helping one another to feed daily on the Scriptures. We don't want just one person in our DNA groups to teach everyone else every single week. We want everyone in our groups to learn together how to read and study and live the Bible. This church here was a learning church. That's really the first characteristic of this church we see here that we should also try to strive for, learning. And a second thing we see in this early church here is fellowship. 
fellowship. If you look at verse 42 again, Luke says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. So these early Christians here, you just picture them there in Jerusalem trying to figure out how all this works at this point in time. Well, Luke is saying there that these early Christians gave themselves to, held fast to, persevered in Christian fellowship. And the Greek word there is the word koinonia. It's a word that means close association or communion between people. It refers to a mutual sharing or participating in one another's lives and things. That's biblical fellowship, this close communion or association. You know, in a lot of Christian circles today, fellowship has become a pretty lame thing. (laughs) Man, it just has. People think fellowship is maybe just a a 10-minute conversation over coffee once a week before the service. You, you, You talk to somebody for five minutes before the service and you walk away. We just had rich fellowship, brother. Good to have fellowship with you this morning. And that might be a small piece of fellowship. But if that's all your fellowship with other Christians is, your fellowship is very anemic and your Christianity will suffer. Derek Thomas says this, He says, few Bible words have suffered more distortion than the word fellowship. We commonly reduce it to chatter and cookies in the church hall, thinking that this is what the New Testament had in mind. But man, please hear me. Biblical koinonia fellowship, it is much deeper, it is much richer, It is more ongoing. It is much closer than just a 10-minute coffee. You know, that Greek word koinonia, in the first century here, when these disciples were committed, devoted to fellowship, that word koinonia, it, 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 it referred to the relationship between husband and wife. That's how it was used. Spouses had a koinonia fellowship with one another. A deep sharing of one another's lives and things. An intimate communion with one another. An intimate connection. That is koinonia. That's the biblical concept of fellowship. And God wants Christians today to engage in that type of fellowship with other Christians. Please hear me, if you are now a Christian, you're following Christ in faith, man, praise God, you've been forgiven of all of your sins, and God's good design for you now as a Christian is that you would live in close koinonia fellowship with the other believers or some of the other believers in your local church family, similar in some way to the fellowship between husband and wife, knowing and being known by one another, sharing in one another's lives and things. That's a biblical koinonia fellowship. And you know, when you look at this passage right here with this early church, we can see in this passage several different features of true fellowship. 
You know, one feature of true fellowship that we see here, and and please hear me on this, this is not a mind-blowing feature of fellowship. This is pretty simple, but we see it here. One of the features of true fellowship is that Christians are just together. A lot. <laughs> Luke says a couple of times here that these Christians were just together regularly. You look at verse 44 again. He says, And all who believed, so these hundreds or even a thousand Christians were together. Or you look at verse 46. He says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, the implication is, Together, just together, day by day, Luke says, they, they were devoted, they were committed to a togetherness with the other Christians in their local church, which is an important feature of true biblical fellowship. You're just together with, with the other believers in your church family, not just in here on Sunday, but out there to some degree through the week, sharing in one another's lives. I've said before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote just a fantastic book on biblical fellowship, and the title of his book is Life Together. We, we talk a lot here in our church about living life on life together. You're just committed to some degree to being together. Sharing together a common life. There's one feature of true fellowship. Another feature of true fellowship we can see here with these Christians, again, it's not mind-blowing stuff. They're just eating together. Frequently. (laughs) Frequently, just a very common table fellowship. Luke says twice here that these Christians broke bread together. If you look at verse 42, he says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then you look at verse 46 again. He says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And there is some debate over what Luke was talking about when he used that phrase, breaking of bread. Was Luke maybe just talking about taking communion together? They were devoted to to taking the Lord's Supper together? Or was Luke maybe talking about the common meals they might have had together? They were just uh, devoted to eating together. And the answer, I believe, is that Luke was probably talking there about both of those things. Because the early Christians typically did both of those things at the same time. They, they didn't take the Lord's Supper like we necessarily do here, this service where all you have is the Lord's Supper and then you go home and you eat your meals. They did them together. The, 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 the Christians would just gather for a common meal in one of their homes, often called an agape meal or a love feast. You can read about it in the book of Jude. Reclining around the table together at these meals, just sharing with one another. And at those meals, 
they'd take the Lord's Supper. And they would just, at some point in the meal, pass the bread and the wine around, and they would remember the death of Christ. And that was breaking bread for those people. These common meals together, day by day, Luke says, in their homes, where they would also frequently take the Lord's Supper. They just ate together. These guys, and women and children, they're, they're just together and they're eating together. This is a common, simple table fellowship around food, which you gotta love. Oh my word, a God who would tell you to eat a lot with other Christians. That's a cool God. And you know, this sort of table fellowship, we might do it a little differently than the first century Christian, sure. But here the principle there. And we think it's still very important for Christians today to gather together regularly and to eat meals together. God created you to eat meals. And I think one of the reasons is so that you might fellowship with other human beings, especially your, your brothers and sisters. Derek Thomas says this about table fellowship today. He says, fellowship around food was important in the early church. And it should be viewed as of no less importance in our time. The Wednesday night supper has become a very common practice in many churches, as has the Sunday evening meal before or after the evening service. Whatever individual churches decide is best for them in their circumstances, this practical aspect of ministry around food, amen, involving sharing and conversation seems vital in bonding relationships and fostering a sense that we are one family. These times should be valued as an important aspect of church life. It's an important feature of biblical fellowship. That's one of the reasons why we encourage all of our life groups to eat meals together as part of their regular rhythm. And listen, just just make the meals simple. That's one of the problems with meals. Oh, they're so complex. You know, it take me a month to plan this thing. Make them simple. Make them comfortable. Good food, music, candles if if you want. You know, candles are not bad to have in your home. They're not evil. Uh is some topic of conversation at the table, maybe, or, 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 a, or a scripture, maybe, to keep the meals Christ-centered and, and, and just enjoy one another. Man, just enjoy your fellow brothers and sisters. That's a cool God who tells you to do that. So, man, just being together, also these common meals, and one final feature of true fellowship that we can see here, a very generous, mutual care, meeting one another's needs. If you look again at what Luke says in verse 44 says this about this early church. He says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And I probably don't have to tell you that some people in history have gone crazy with those verses. (laughs) Thinking that God was saying there that Christians should be some sort of communists. Uh, You know, none of us own our our own property. Uh, We should just uh, pool all of our resources, live in some commune. Uh, The Branch Davidians had a right, you know. Uh, At this time in history, 
back in the first century, a Jewish group called the Essenes actually lived like that. The, the Qumran community, it was a communal type of living. They had no personal property. They pooled everything. Marriages were forbidden, which might explain why there's no Essenes anymore. <laughs> listen, if you ever want to start your own religious order, listen, point number one, if you want your order to last more than maybe like one generation, uh, then allow people to actually marry and have babies, <laughs> and your order will exist. Otherwise, you're dead. <laughs> but that was the Essenes. They're no longer around, but there was, they were kind of this communist type of, of, of living, and, and some people think that this early church here also lived like that, a Christian communism. But that's not the case. It is very clear in the book of Acts that many of these early Christians still own their own property, uh, personal possessions. Luke says right here that they met in their homes. <laughs> and as you go through the book of Acts, it's very, very clear that many of them still owned their own homes, their property, personal possessions. And all the selling and giving to others that's going on right here in this passage and in other places in Acts, you know what? None of it was a forced giving. You've got to do this or else you're in trouble. No, none of it was. It was a voluntary, very generous, very willing giving from, from these Christians here. It's not some sort of communism. But please hear me on this. What we do see here is a very radical generosity. A very radical mutual care. Meeting one another's needs in, in very practical ways. Luke says that these Christians here had all things in common. Not meaning that they had all just pooled all their resources, but meaning that, man, they freely, voluntarily gave anything that they owned to those in their body who were in need, sharing with them, selling their possessions and belongings, Luke says, which most likely meant selling their real estate and their valuables and distributing the proceeds, Luke says, to all as any had need. Tertullian, he was an early Christian leader in the 200s AD, he said this about the early Christians. He said, contributions are voluntary and proportionate to each one's income. They are used to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls who are destitute of means, and parents, and and of old people now confined to the house, and such as have suffered shipwreck, or any who are in the mines, or banished to the islands, or shut up in prison for their fidelity or their faithfulness to God's church. Man, it was just this radical generosity, this mutual care, meeting the needs of other believers. It's another feature of, of true fellowship that God wants every local church and every Christian to practice. John Stott says this. He says, Christian fellowship is Christian caring, and Christian caring is Christian sharing. And this radical generosity it's really just walking in the footsteps of Christ who gave everything he had to meet our 
needs. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, taking your sin on the cross, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Jesus, the the, the infinitely wealthy One, gave away everything He had for you and me, in order that we, infinitely poor sinners, through faith in Him, might receive His infinitely valuable blessings. Jesus met our every need. And Jesus now looks at you and he says, go now and do likewise. You with a radical generosity give to those believers around you who are in in need. Man, all those things we see here, this Christians being together and eating meals, mutual care, those are all features of true biblical fellowship. Much more than just a 10 minute coffee on a Sunday morning. And God wants every local church. He wants every single Christian to practice that type of of fellowship. Walking in the footsteps of Christ. So that's the second characteristic or feature of this early church here. That we should also strive for. It was a learning church. It was a fellowshipping church. And a third characteristic of this early church here. Man, this church was a worshiping church. Worship. Luke describes several things here that these early Christians did together that would all fall under that big title of worshiping God. A a corporate together type of worship for for these Christians back in in Jerusalem. Several things they do that would go under this title of corporate worship of God. For starters, they took the Lord's Supper together at their common meals. It was an act of, of corporate together worship, remembering together the death of Christ, which we'll do here today. And another aspect of their their worship, this church here also prayed together. Another active of corporate together worship. If you look at verse 42 once more, Luke says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the the scriptures and the koinonia of fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and they devoted themselves to the prayers. They devoted themselves. They gave themselves, persevered together in prayer. Which probably included some very informal times of prayer together. They're just in their homes and they, hey, let's pray for a second. Hey, Peter stubbed his toe. Let's pray for the guy. Um, praying to, to, to bless their meals. These informal times of prayer. But their prayers together also probably included more formal set times of prayer together throughout the day. The, the Jewish people at this time in history... They had these scheduled prayer times every day. They prayed three to four times a day, like clockwork. They they prayed at the temple there in Jerusalem. Or if they weren't at the temple, wherever they were, they would pray toward the temple there in Jerusalem several times a day. Uh, We can see that pattern in the Old Testament scriptures. Daniel prayed three times a day facing the temple when he was off in exile in Babylon. 
Or David says in Psalm 55 that he prayed morning, noon, and night. There's this pattern in the scriptures of these set or scheduled times of prayer which were still going on at this time in history with this early church here in Jerusalem. And these early Christians here followed that same prayer pattern. Almost all scholars unanimously believe these Christians probably followed this pattern of set daily prayers. And there is evidence in the scriptures. In Acts 3, Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer. In Acts 10, Peter is praying on a rooftop at another hour of prayer. And if you notice very carefully what Luke says there in verse 42, he says that these Christians here devoted themselves to the prayers. And notice the definite article there. The prayers, which is probably a reference there to those set daily prayers that were in Jerusalem at this time. They devoted themselves to these prayers. Luke also probably alludes to those set prayers down in verse 46, if you look at it. Luke says, and day by day, attending the temple together. And listen, one of the reasons why these early disciples went to the temple together day by day was probably to take part in those temple prayers. John Stott says this, he says, I do not believe they still participated in the sacrifices of the temple for already they had begun to grasp that these sacrifices had been fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. But they do seem to have attended the prayer services of the temple. And I personally believe it's still a great practice for Christians today to have several set times of of prayer. 